Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day again, Alan. Oh, hi, Darren, and a prosperous, happy and healthy year of the rat to you and our listeners. Thank you. Well, dear listeners, we're going to try something a little different today. I had the privilege of attending the Ricina Dialogue from the 14th to the 16th of January in New Delhi, which is organised by the Observer Research Foundation, ORF, an Indian think tank, working closely with the Indian Ministry of External Affairs. Now, this was supposed to be a significant event on the 2020 Australian foreign policy calendar, with the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister all attending, along with many other officials and a business delegation. Now, as we all know, this, of course, did not happen, with the Prime Minister having to cancel his visit given the ongoing challenges of the bushfires and leaving only Foreign Minister Maurice Payne to fly the Australian flag. Nevertheless, I had not been to Hawaii, and I did not have to manage a bushfire response, so I was still able to attend, and this is the first time that I had ever been to a big conference like this. So what we thought we would do is have Alan do most of the questioning today and put me under the spotlight more directly. So let's see if this works. Over to you, Alan. Well, thanks, Aaron. I really enjoy being the interrogator <laughs> for a change. So, look, first of all, can you just introduce the Ricina Dialogue for listeners? Tell, tell us what it is. So this year was its fifth iteration, so it's five years old. It began in 2016. And as I understood it, it has its political genesis in the electoral victory of Prime Minister Modi. And he had run on a platform that included a stronger, more confident India you know, on the international stage. And so as it was described to me, the ORF came to the view that there were conversations happening regarding India's national interests along the dimensions of security, prosperity, ideas, innovation that were not happening in Delhi but all around the world and that creating a new global forum would help shift and I think refocus these conversations in ways consistent with the Modi government's agenda and India's national interests more broadly. And so they sort of pitched the idea to the Ministry of External Affairs and it was quickly agreed upon and, and they got started. Now, as an IR academic, to me, this looks precisely the kind of thing that a rising power would do as a way of seeking more influence and prestige by shaping you know, the, the global conversation. And when I think of equivalents around the world to this dialogue, Alan, the three that come to mind are the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore the Munich Security Conference in Germany, and the Bauer Forum in China. Now, Alan, you've attended, I think, both the Ricina Dialogue and the Shangri-La Dialogue in the past. So if we can focus on the Shangri-La Dialogue for a moment, can you just quickly explain how you see its role or its utility uh, for Australian foreign policy? Well, the, Sh the Shangri-La Dialogue is organised very well, I might say, by the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. It's been going longer. It's been on the ground, I think, since 2002, when the IISS, which, of course, had traditionally focused on the strategic 
and military challenges of superpower competition in Europe during the Cold War, they saw the need to pay deeper attention to strategic dialogue in Asia, where there was no comprehensive regional security framework. Australia was a very important supporter from the beginning. I think we provided funding support and certainly the annual meeting in June has been a regular commitment in the program of all Australian defence ministers and sometimes prime ministers. It attracts very high level representation. The US Secretary of Defence usually makes an appearance, although Chinese participation has waxed and waned a bit. For the ministers and officials, the range of bilateral meetings that goes along with it is usually more important than the plenary sessions. It's invitation only for the 200 or so non-government delegates who attend. My own impression after attending for a number of years, both as a think tanker, then as an official, was that it was an excellent place to test the temperature of the conventional wisdom about security policy in Asia at a particular point in time and valuable for the opportunities it provided ministers and officials to interact. But it probably wasn't the place you'd look to for striking new insights and fresh ways of thinking about the world. Mm. So uh, how does that description line up with what you found at Drysena this year? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a contrast. As you said, the Shangri-La dialogue is security-focused and it does as I understand it, privilege the voices of senior officials. So you, you get a keynote from the Secretary of Defence and you know, the Chinese equivalent each year. And, and it has that more mature, almost 20 years old now, well-organised event. And I think the Ricena Dialogue organisers see themselves as offering a much broader scope to begin with, not just to focus on regional security, but economics, climate change, democracy and institutions, gender and also a much wider range of participants. So it's not just government officials, but civil society, business, academics. And interestingly, a special role for youth delegates. Rycina has a, a, a sort of a youth delegate program, Young Fellows, and they have occupy a privileged, elevated platform in the, the main meeting hall, and they're always given the first opportunity to ask questions in each session, which I thought was, was pretty cool. But there's a trade-off, I suppose. Shangri-La has this narrow security focus and that allows you to get some clarity on the current thinking. Whereas in Rycina, you've got lots of different voices, lots of different topics, a very wide-ranging and pluralistic discussion, which I think makes it harder to find clear threads to take away from the meeting. But overall, you had 700 international participants representing over 100 countries. Big lot. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And the headliners in terms of the sitting officials were the foreign ministers of, of Russia, of Iran, and which was very interesting, and of course, Foreign Minister Payne from Australia, as well as the European Union High Representative for Foreign Policy. But in contrast, I think, to your description of Shangri-La as being very well organised, Rasina in these early years, there's still a sense, I suppose, of managed chaos around the whole thing. Lots of people, everything coming together at the last minute. The program wasn't released until the weekend prior. But look, it, it all worked. You know, it seemed very successful to me. And I think the Observer Research Foundation would be the first to admit that they're still very much in a learning phase. So I think an interesting contrast. So, so how come were you were there? 
Well, with the Prime Minister attending, or at least the plan for Morrison to attend, the Australian High Commission was playing a leading role in in helping organise and support the dialogue. And so there were a lot of Australians, I guess, sucked into that gravitational orbit of that that organising. And in the end, at least a dozen of us attended. I personally had been sort of in conversations with people at the mission about geoeconomics and other issues. And in those conversations, sort of the opportunity came up to get me involved. And <laughs> amusingly, I suppose, because of our podcast, it seems like there are some regular listeners to the, the podcast in the mission in Delhi, and they recommended me to the Observer Research Foundation as someone who could do some podcasting for them while I was there. And so that essentially was my role. I interviewed the ORF president, uh, Dr. Samir Saran, to get a history and overview of the rest in the dialogue. And I also interviewed the former Prime Minister of Denmark, and the for- he's also been the Secretary General of NATO, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, on a wide variety of topics. And those podcast interviews are going to be used by Ricina to sort of help publicise the event into the future. And my own trips was supported by the Australian National University's National Security College, and I attended with Rory Medcalf, who is the NSC's head. And the NSC is doing a lot of work engaging with Indian counterparts, and there'll be a workshop later this year and I think is doing a lot to help fill out the government's efforts to deepen ties with India. Yeah, look, big shout-outs to uh, Rory, who probably deserves more credit than anyone else for bringing the framing concept of the Indo-Pacific into Australian strategic discourse and then exporting it more widely. Mm, mm. But look, let's get to the substance of the dialogue itself. What did it tell you about the current strategic debate in India? Successive Australian governments now have placed great weight on India's growing role in East Asia, but it's always seemed to me that Indian political leaders and strategists have traditionally been much more concerned with looking to the West, to Pakistan, and to the North, the land border with China. So how did you read the Indian Mm. worldview coming out of it? As I said, the, the sort of the breadth of the conference makes that a harder question to answer. You don't have a clear line of thinking that you might receive from the speech from a defence minister at the Shangri-La dialogue, for example. Yeah, Prime Minister Modi attended the opening session but did not speak. And the foreign minister, Dr Jaishankar, um, did a sort of an in-conversation event with the ORF president rather than giving a formal speech. So if, if I had to summarise my impressions, though, I would say that India is fully aware, as we all are, especially you and I on this podcast, Alan, that the world is a very turbulent place right now and that the Indian government would like to position India as a stabilising force rather than another source of disruption. And what this means is, is it translates, I think, into caution and you might even say some tentativeness in how India messages and talks about what are probably the three biggest sources of disruption in the world right now. The trade war between Washington and Beijing, US-Iran tensions, and US-Russia jousting, we might call it that. And so this came to a head when the ORF president, Samir Saran, drew a contrast between India being a bystander or an onlooker in some of these big tensions versus being a shaper of these events. And he put that to the foreign minister and asked which one you know, is more applicable. And as I passed the FM's answer, he was saying that at least on those very big tensions, India is more of an observer rather than looking to get you know, directly and deeply involved in those disputes. And that to me sounds about right. India doesn't want to be picking sides 
but does want to be at least sort of present in the broader conversation. You know, you had both the Russian and the Iranian foreign ministers attending, so it's not like India is going to automatically side with the United States on all of these issues. And so Delhi is very much caught in the middle and is, it's not going to seek to push things in a particular direction other than sort of urging restraint and, and dialogue. And then to the extent that India was looking to prosecute a positive agenda, it was about being a leading voice for the global south, it was about pushing its program of economic and technological engagement with the world and promoting the India brand. Yoga was mentioned as part of that rather than getting involved in these heavy politics, uh, political disputes. Yeah, well, the program of economic and technological engagement with the world would have been much more persuasive if they'd actually signed on to RCEP, the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Indeed, yeah. Look, what, what about China? You mentioned the often fraught relationship with it, central to every regional strategic conversation we have. How did that play out? Yeah, it's true. But again, it seemed to me that moderate a moderate tone was, was the most prominent. And I think perhaps the most interesting observation that came out came from a questioner in one of the sessions where he noted that last Israel a dialogue, China was the elephant in the room. It was part of every issue, but no one would mention China directly. And this year, China was directly discussed in, in almost every session with a much more forthrightness than, than previously. And this is despite the absence of any official representation from the Chinese government. I don't believe they've ever sent officials to the dialogue. And so I think, again, that's sort of consistent with what we've been talking about over the past year. China's increasing power is making it more prominent and, and focusing attention focusing debates and indeed I've noticed in the past few weeks this genre of writing which has been um, trying to score you know Xi Jinping's year was it a good year for the the Chinese president or was it a bad year and so whether you think he's done well or not everyone's paying much more attention to China and willing to discuss it more openly now the Indian foreign minister and the Indian chief of naval staff were both sort of quizzed directly about China and the foreign minister said look we've got no choice but to get along with them even though the the relationship is a work in progress. And the chief of naval staff was quizzed by a BBC moderator, the Australian Yalda Hakim, about Chinese naval vessels that have been sort of causing mischief in India's waters. And he, the naval officer, sort of admitted that, yes, Chinese vessels had been entering India's exclusive economic zone. But even then, he sort of refused to be overly critical. He was like, yes, it's there. We don't like it. We tell them to leave. But he didn't sort of really take the conversation anywhere. And so for me, the China discussion, at least from the India perspective, was was consistent with what I'd said earlier. Like India wants to be in the conversation, wants to, is happy to discuss China, but carefully and moderately. Uh, look, let's talk about India itself. We've discussed previously some of the worrying developments domestically in India, especially over uh, governance in Kashmir and the recent protests in response to citizenship legislation that's appeared to discriminate against Muslims and the way in which this has the potential to complicate Australia's uh, relationship with New Delhi. Those sort of recent measures cut across the normative arguments we've discussed before, which Mm. contrast the rule of law and democratic values of the Quad participants with authoritarian China. So did this come up at all? How was it handled? So when the foreign minister did his sit down with the ORF president, it did come up to to Samir Saran's credit, but only at the very end 
of the co- the forty five minute conversation, and he asked the question in a, in a very diplomatic way. He sort of noted that there has been domestic turmoil, including the protests, and he and I think the exact phrasing of the question was, "What do you tell the world when you go out?" Which was I thought a very nice way of asking it, um, given that he is Indian himself and has been working closely with the ministry. And so the foreign minister himself you know, didn't really engage with the merits of the critique. He said first that these problems were national variants, they were Indian variants of similar challenges being faced around the world, and that countries who are inquiring should ask how they themselves have responded to similar issues. And then second, he, he talked about how the government was trying to fix inherited problems rather than leave them for future generations. And his final point was that India... Only India could define itself, and it was not going to let other people do it for them. So he sort of danced around it, gave an answer, so at least it wasn't completely ignored, but certainly wasn't engaging with the substance of the concerns. The other instance where this came up directly was when the National General Secretary of the BJP was pushed and criticised on the citizenship issue by several audience members, who seemed to be Indians, but I couldn't be sure in the Q&A part of his panel, which was also about democracy. And I should also note that there were some other questioners who sought to defend the BJP's record as well. In response, the National Secretary began by asserting from the outset that the questioners might not have known what they were talking about before denying, as I understood him, that there was any issue with democracy in India. He didn't really seem interested in engaging with the substance of the critique you know, that Muslims were being marginalised or discriminated against, and noted simply that if people didn't like it, there were democratic mechanisms to change governments in the future. And other than that, from what I saw, and I didn't attend every session, was mostly silence on these issues. People didn't really bring them up. I mean, maybe there's a sense of decorum involved that you don't want to criticise your hosts. I mean, is that a thing, Alan? I mean, would you have expected participants to tackle the issue head on? Uh, no, at a, at a conference like this, it's something I would have expected to hear in the corridors rather than mm. the, from the front of the stage. And it's ob- obviously a very divisive issue for Indians uh, too, of course. So it's not just the mm. outside world and India, but it's what's happening uh, inside the Indian democracy as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in conversations it came up, but it did come up in some of the sessions as well. But indirectly, the individual that comes to mind... First was the head of a Dutch cyber institute. Her name is Murray Sharker. And she was on the very first panel on the Wednesday morning that was on democracy. And she said very clearly, you know, democracy is more than one person, one vote. It's about the rule of law. It's about institutions, the protection of minorities. And she then went on to say that there are countries who claim to be democratic where we are seeing undemocratic behaviour including shutdowns of the internet. And so while not mentioning India, it was very clear that you know, given how, how widespread the internet shutdowns have been in Kashmir, and I think there are still parts of Kashmir where the internet still six months later has not been restored, I think her message was pretty clear. But maybe the most interesting aspect to this was actually some of the pushback that her argument got from other corners of, of the Western participants. And I'm thinking most prominently of the former Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, who has been a regular attendee at this dialogue. He actually came to India's defence, saying at the inaugural session, I think the quote was, India is not going to be a bastion of Western liberalism. India has its own identity, its own nationalism. And then the following day, he was on stage with with Mari Shaka, and he actually sought to 
in an answer, isolate or distinguish at least the values of what he called a global liberal elite from those of most of the rest of the world in which he included India. And he sort of was saying perspectives on faith and identity and nationalism, according to him, you know, could not be berated out of existence and that Indian nationalism, like Chinese nationalism, was a reality that had to be dealt with. And it wasn't even just Harper himself. There was actually even traces of this coming from the most senior Trump administration official who attended, Matt Pottinger. And we'll talk a bit a bit more about him in a moment. But on this particular issue, he sort of raised the question of populism, but he said, you know, populism should be better characterised, in his words, as, as refreshing the idea that the citizens should be central to democratic governance. And it reminded me a bit, Alan, of our debate regarding Prime Minister Morrison's Lowy lecture. You know, while I don't think Morrison himself, and, and, and certainly not me in my defence of his speech, would condone or even excuse some of the more illiberal developments inside the world's democracies, like what's happening in India. It's still true, I think, that the, the ideas contained in the Lowy speech and expressed by Harper and, and by Matt Pottinger sort of fall on a spectrum in which sovereignty and nationalism and a particular version of cultural expression find some degree of support. So that I think that debate actually was probably the most interesting sort of academic and intellectual, uh, but also policy-relevant debate that I saw throughout the entire dialogue. Do you have any reaction to, to that? Well, it's interesting, uh, Darren. In, in our end-of-the-year podcast, I uh, declared sovereignty as my 2019 word mm. of the year, and I, I'm sure we'll come back to this in future. We're not going to do a reading, watching, listening segment this time, but next time we do, I'll be recommending a book I'm not yet quite through called The Light That Failed, A Reckoning by Ivan Krustov and Stephen Holmes. This is a terrifically stimulating and original account of the reasons for the failure of liberalism to take root at the end of the Cold War. So you can understand why sovereignty is coming back into favour. But mm. in, in a couple of weeks in which we've seen the impact of climate change and the emergence of a new strain of uh, coronavirus in China, we're also reminded of the real limits of national sovereignty in addressing the most important yeah. of the uh, looming problems of our age. Anyway, we'll mm. come back to this. But getting, yeah. look, getting, getting back to Australia, how did, how did we fit into the debate in Scott Morrison's absence? Yeah, well, I mean, as I said earlier, it was supposed to be a big show for us and, and there was genuine sympathy at what we are experiencing with the bushfires. And, you know, also, you know, with disappointment added in, not just from, from the organisers of the conference, but also from the mission itself. I mean, a lot of work had been done by Australian diplomats to prepare the ground for the PM's visit, and he was supposed to be giving the inaugural speech. And, you know, you wonder whether a lot of the benefit of that work might never be fully realised, given that even if he returns later in the year, as he, as he plans to do so. I mean, one comment was made, the Australian cricket team was in town as well. So there was a real sort of perfect alignment of, of events and, and forces that would have really, um, you know, I think sort of promoted the Australia-India relationship, which obviously didn't didn't pan out. But equally, I do wonder whether the, the Prime Minister's inner circle might 
not have been slightly relieved to, to not have to answer any questions about creeping illiberalism in India's democracy or uh, given the ongoing protests. Or, or indeed questions about the promotion of thermal coal exports. <laughs> yes, that, that, that too, that too. Anyway, um, but there was still a good, strong representation from all of the other rest of us, including the foreign minister herself. So what did Maurice Payne have to say? She did the final event of the conference, what was called the Showstopper, which was on the Thursday evening, and that was a panel. And she was asked the first question by Samir Saran, the ORF president, in which the topic of climate change was put to her. Um, but again, I guess like his questioning of his own foreign minister, he was very diplomatic about how he asked her. He sort of mentioned that the four big themes of the conference multilateralism, democracy, technology, and climate change. And he asked for her comment on those themes. And because she was given a list of four things to discuss, she decided to avoid climate change in her answer and mentioned the other three. So I suppose, and in doing so, she sort of gave what I would describe as more of a a boilerplate discussion or description of, of the values around which Australian foreign policy is structured. And she didn't really engage with the specifics of the conference. And I suppose that's not a surprise given that she hadn't attended and couldn't be expected to sit through the entire thing. The Prime Minister himself actually also recorded a message of support, a five-minute video. And interestingly, again, I noted he didn't, even in discussing the bushfires, he didn't mention the phrase climate change, but used the term environmental challenges. So, you know, as I recall, we discussed, you know, our last episode, Alan, the lack of engagement with the climate change question. And even in the context of the immense sympathy generated by the bushfires, I think put limited, it put a cap on the extent to which her contribution was able to shape or, or play a leading role in moving the, the conversation at the dialogue. So, so who was on the panel with her? So Matt Pottinger, who I mentioned earlier, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor in the, in the Trump administration. Then you had the Secretary of the Indian Ministry of External Affairs, so I guess their equivalent of Francis Adamson, and also the Secretary of the Finnish Defence Department. Is that notable to you, Alan, at all? Well, I, I have to say, as a matter of principle and protocol, I'm a a bit surprised. I, I would expect and want to see any Australian foreign minister at a conference like this in a speaking slot of her own or or if she's on a panel of peers rather than civil servants. But maybe there were program issues on her part that uh, led to this. Yeah, maybe, maybe it made more sense, I suppose. If, if the Prime Minister had been there, it might have looked a bit less out of the ordinary, but it was more glaring when he, in his absence, I suppose. Yeah, I, I still... <laughs> I still don't like the idea of the Australian foreign minister sitting down with uh, on a panel with officials. It just doesn't gel with me. But look, look, you mentioned the US deputy NSA, Mac Pottinger, but otherwise you've had nothing to say at all about the United States, which in its own way seems revealing. What did Pottinger have to say? Well, he was given the chance to respond. You know, the previous day, the, the Russian and Iranian foreign ministers have been given keynote slots to speak. Actually, no, the Iranian foreign minister did a good in-conversation. But he was given a chance to respond to some of the critiques that they and the arguments they had laid out. But really, I think the most interesting thing that he said was probably the administration's embrace of the broadest possible definition of the Indo-Pacific con- concept. He sort of explicitly said, we agree with India now that it includes East Africa and the Gulf and my recollection is that they had kind of drawn a, a soft line at about India and now that they are expanding it out. Mm. 
But other than that, my major takeaway from watching him was just that he, and listening in, you know, listening in real time, was that he just exuded much more of a, a Trumpy affect than I was expecting, and I'd never seen him in person before. But he's someone who is widely respected in policy circles. You know, I've only heard good things about him, especially for his China expertise. People were relieved that he was going to be part of the National Security Council, one of the adults in the room type of thing. And in person, you know, he just came across as a bit louder and, and, and more directly attacking and you know, a bit less diplomatic than what I'm used to seeing from senior officials. I mean, it wasn't so much the substance of what he said. Most of it is not unreasonable, other than, I suppose, his confident prediction that Trump would be re-elected, and I just didn't see why that was a necessary thing to say. But it was just more in the way he said it. And I went back and, and watched the video, and all of the sessions are on YouTube if you if you care to watch them. And it, it doesn't come out nearly as much on the video, and this was more just, I think, my impression in the moment. But other than that, you know, there were a couple of State Department participants but no one as senior as Pottinger, and, and even you know one of the more notable panels, which was the Quad panel, which had an array of naval officers on it. There were naval officers from Australia, we had um, uh, India, Japan, France and the UK, but there was no one from the US, and I guess that meant the gravity of that, of that panel was reduced. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Look, my own rule of thumb on the value of conferences like this is that if you can come away with three new thoughts, you're doing pretty well. So, <laughs> so did, did, did the experience change any of your own views? I think it was more having never been to one of these things before, just sort of the, the bracing experience of sort of being in the same space as, as some of these very senior and in, in some ways infamous people. We're at a conference where the most prominent voices were not the usual suspects, but they were the Russian and Iranian foreign ministers. But then having said that, the, the human aspect comes in because the Iranian foreign minister, Zarif, he's a very, I want to say disarming guy. He's got this very goofy smile about him and he smiles a lot. And so he doesn't really come across as being a threatening individual. I remember I was, I was sitting and standing in the lobby with with John Lee, um, who is at the United States Study Centre, and we were just chatting. And then from the distance behind him, I could see this sort of mass of people walking towards us with a, a, an ORF person in the lead and then about seven or eight people clustered together. I'm like, who's this? And they came, well, they were heading straight for us. And I sort of said to John, oh, you better move to one side. And indeed, when this, when the first, the head of the, this little group came up, he sort of nudged John to get out of the way. And so we get out of the way. And then the the seven or eight people behind come through and the middle of them is Zarif. And Zarif just looks at John and gives this sort of goofy smile <laughs> and kind of keeps on walking. And so it just wasn't wasn't what you would expect, especially given you know the Iranian tensions, given that they'd just shot down this plane and, and there was huge international tension around what Iran was doing. It just wasn't it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and I actually recommend to our listeners watching his interview because he does speak to you know some of the terrible things that Haran had done. He calls the the shooting down of the plane unforgivable. So he's willing to concede mm. that Iran had done some very bad things, but equally he's able to turn his entire answer into fairly effective critique of, of the Trump administration, but also highlight that Iran is not alone in its situation and there are many who are supporting Iran. And, and I think it just, to me, it seemed like very effective diplomacy. And just, it's, it's one thing when you see these people written about in the papers and you watch them on the TV, but when they're in person, you sort of go, oh yeah, this is, this is a human being. And it's one that seemed quite likable, just on, on that human 
human dimension. I mean, have you noticed that, Alan, that when you've been, been surprised, you meet a world leader of some kind and they come across very differently to what, what you would expect? Yeah, no, I mean, you have to keep reminding yourself that these are actually people with their own personalities and so on. Yeah, no, it's, it's always striking to meet figures that you've only seen on television or read about in the papers in the flesh. Mm. And other than that, I think yeah, something you said about the Shangri-La dialogue, Alan, that the value of these things often happens on the sidelines with bilateral meetings. I mean, I think that's also true for not just for government officials, but for the rest of us who are participating. For me, it was a great chance to, to meet and spend some time with the diplomats working at the Australian High Commission, um, who'd been working very long hours in the lead up to the conference. It was interesting for me to see what it looks like to, to staff and support a foreign minister's visit and all the small things that you need to do to make it work. For example, I, I can proudly say, Alan, that I did my part by saving some seats at one of the front tables a few hours prior to the quad panel so that the, the newly arriving foreign minister and her staff and senior diplomats would have a good seat in the room rather than having being stuck at the back. So, foreign minister, you're welcome. But on a personal note, you know, I got to meet a bunch of interesting people, especially the Australians. I got to know two Australians quite well, that people I knew from Twitter and from their work, but not personally, and that's Natasha Kassam at the Lowy Institute and Rebecca Strating at, at La Trobe. Both brilliant and endlessly fun people, but I met them because the Deputy High Commissioner Rod Hilton had organised an informal event for the participating Australians at the High Commission. So it was a good opportunity to network, and not, not just with Australians. I mean, I had interesting conversations and interactions with, with many Indians, of course, and, and people from Sri Lanka, Germany, Canada, Denmark, Singapore. So I think overall, not so much changing my worldview, maybe adding a bit more, you know, fleshing out some of the some of the themes that we've and trends we've been discussing, Alan, but more just sort of for myself, you know, getting more of a sense of how these things work and, and meeting some very interesting people along the way. Well, look, thanks, Darren. Thank you for your service in... in <laughs> saving, <laughs> saving seats. seats. <laughs> and uh, and uh, thank you for telling us about it. You've been a terrific guest. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind, Alan. It was a pleasure to be here and I hope I can be invited back again soon. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia and the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Isabel Hancock for her help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stedding for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>